said to you, as my friend. Did you hear a lot of it at different times and in different parts of the country? Quoting how Bill came in, how the organization, all the fellowship started. There's only one man in the world tonight who knows exactly how it started. Because he was sober and Bill was drunk. So, I give you my friend and your friend, our founder, Eddie. Thank you, Dick. Well, as Dick told you, my name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. I know I just thought it's quite this off. Dick asked me over here. I was very glad to come if I wanted to meet some of you, Marcus Cable. When I had an idea, I was one of two or three speakers, and I didn't know I was going to hold this thing down for 40 or 45 minutes. And back home in Dallas, I had known as a lowest kind of speaker. They used me back there around a different place for the 10 minute and 15 minute spot. So I don't know just how I'm going to go about holding down for 45 minutes, but I'll do the best I can. Yes, I I've been living in Texas for five years now. Maybe I've gotten enough of that Texas braggadocio somewhere in the system. Maybe I was five seconds so I can pull some of that out of the hat. There's a story I heard a year or two after I got in Dallas. It's all it's taken while I fancy. I hope you'll indulge me and let me tell it. The Texas rancher drove over to his nearest neighbor. It was about 15 miles and so we still go to town and make a day of it. That's all right. Got his hat and they got in the car and they started out. As soon as we got out of sight of the ranch house, they opened up the first observing and had a good long pull on the bottle and the first character, you know. So they took 3,000 bulls and brought away the day before yesterday. After the store, they drove on a line and came to the gate and they had to open that and I had another pour the bottle in the second glass. So, you know, I skipped 2,500 bulls from my side in four or five days ago. We go along, just before they got to the main state highway, they stopped for a third good hooker, and the, the first rancher said again, you know, I think we're the two biggest bull shippers in Texas. <laughs> and I hope I'll require a little of that so I can... What it out tonight. I know that Dick and Jim Drake and some of the other boys wanted me to tell you some of the beginnings of AA as I experienced them. And you know, I think that I appreciate the things that Dick has said and other people have said about me. But I sometimes think that my chief claim to fame is that I'm Exhibit A in the Antique Division of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's about it. Well, I got to go back to some of my beginnings. I started drinking when I was in school. I come from Oregon in New York. It's my native town. Went to a private school there. And I started drinking when last year. I seemed to hold it under control pretty well. 
I did get off on a wild party one night. It was a military school, and we had a, a competitive drill, and after the drill, we all went out and had his stomach, we out and got drunk. And we got in a mess, and the principal of the school heard about it. But nothing was said. But I, uh, uh, wasn't very well that spring, and they took me out of school before school was over, and that summer the principal wrote to his father, and he always called me Ed. He didn't call me Ed, or Ed. He said, I don't think we can do anything more for Ed. Which meant that he was just expelling uh, me from the school. So that fall, my father said, you're going to work in the foundry. My father happened to be in the iron foundry business. So I went to work that fall. And uh, I confined my drinking to Saturday night. Naturally, I had to get up six o'clock to down. I worked in the, as a murderer's helper, which is fairly rugged work, as you may know. And I did that for a year, and I confined most of my drinking to Saturday night, except around Christmas time when all the dances were going on. And then I really stepped out. I remember I tried to go to work with drinking and dancing and Getting down to work at 7 o'clock in the morning when I was young, and he'd take it off and work it off by night. And I managed to get away with it for a while. But as I look back and remember those times, I wasn't a very successful drinker from the start. There were times, too, when I'd take some of the older guys around all me home. And other times, I'd be climbing a chandelier at three or four drinks. I never knew what was going to happen. Thank you, my reason, I was about 15 years old. I remember putting a lot of thought into this business of drinking because it was in my family. My brothers drank pretty heavily, and my father did. And uh, I kind of figured if they drank that way, and it wasn't any good for them, and it was no good for me either, because I was just about the same temperament as they were. But it was that first drink that I ever took on my own when I walked into the bar of the hotel tonight and I me and ordered a glass of beer all by myself and I was a big shot. And I still say I was a dead but glass of beer all the cases. Sometimes I can almost curse it again. And somehow that, that just gave me just a faint glow and uh, that beer was a lot stronger in those days and it was real beer. That was about 19... 14, I think. 19, yes, it was 1914. And I know that I said to myself, this is for me. And soon after that, when I started drinking, I kept it down pretty well, up two or three drinks. I used to go out of uh, an evening that spring. Uh, and this friend of mine, I went to school, he called me up and asked me if I had my lessons done. I said, sure, I used to just a stall because the family was sitting in the room. And I said, sure, Andy, I'll go out and have a chocolate milk with you. I got time. And we were far from chocolate milk. But I managed to get home by 11 o'clock so there was nobody knowing about it. But I know the effect and the taste of alcohol was, a, was fascinating to me from the beginning. And later on, I read a book called The Common Sense of Drinking, from which a lot of AA was taken by Dick Peabody. He's not dead, but he was one of the first of the lay therapists that 
And a tremendous following of alcoholics. A lot of other books have been written by a lot of his pupils. The class crush is one of them by Dutch Chambers, and I can name a half a dozen. I can't think of them right now. But he said in that book that the difference between an alcoholic and a heavy drinker was that the heavy drinker might drink just as much on a given night as the alcoholic, but the next day is another day to him, and he wants to work, and his first thing in the awakening in the morning was the office. Well, the first thought that the alcoholic had is in the night before, and where could he get the next drink to get bring that party back again? And that always appeared to me that that's the way I was. And forget business and was get somewhere where I could get with the gang again. And he said the effect of alcohol on people of your type is too fascinating. You can't handle it. But I knew that But I knew then that and couple with the drinking in my family, I figured out that I better leave should stay away from it, but I never did once I had that drink. But as time went on, I of course got into a lot of more trouble. And uh the family business broke up as one of those things do that's been running since eighteen fifty two and it broke up in nineteen twenty two. And I was more or less on the loose and going from one job to another and getting in more trouble all the time. Our drinking was increasing. I didn't get overseas in World War One when I was in the outfit of the station around right in my hometown of Orleans. And then the state army there, I, I got to be a regular lieutenant in this outfit and we always had a jug in the office quarters because of the druggist. In one of the corners, right near the army. Then always, somehow I managed to get a barrel of whiskey, and we could get it because those were the days of prescription. Back of this, you were a prescription during prohibition, and you'd go in and get this pint of whiskey, but we got it all we wanted. We got that gallon, gallon jug filled repeatedly. And there was a pretty two fifths of drinking crowd, and they were all over it, and I was. Well, finally, uh, we got into a jam one night. We got in a taxi wreck. And I just got superficial cuts from my both wrist and face. But I was kind of a bloody mess. It was just bleeding a lot. My father came in. I was sitting on the bed. And he said, you get out of that national guard tomorrow morning. You say, you leave my house. Well, I didn't feel like leaving this house right now, so... Late that afternoon, I walked up and told the captain I was going to resign, request to be put on the reserve. So that ended my National Guard career, and that phase of the drinking. But things got worse, and my father and mother died in 27, my father in 29. And uh, I was kicking around then pretty bad. I inherited some money from my father. I should have had sense enough to take care of it. But I didn't. I lost half of it overnight in a stock market crash, and the rest I just down the drain. Over a period of a year, a year and a half, 
used to summer in Vermont. And it was all that I met Bill Wilson. But it was longer ago than 24 years ago. I first knew Bill about 1910. I went to school with him in 1912. Which has taken us back quite a few years. And... Well, uh, to get back, I, uh, we went to Summers in the Manchester, Vermont. Well, after my father died, the house was vacant up there. We bought a house after all the years that father had spent money at the hotel for all of us. He bought a house in 
said somewhere at the end of your head about something. I said, you mean about my drinking? They said, yeah, you're not getting anywhere. You understand you're in law all over town. And we just sort of... Well, we just sort of... We got mixed up with a group called the Oxford Group. And we think that you could get help if you joined up with it. And they said, do you ever think of letting God run your life instead of every patch you're trying to run it all the time? And they really talked sense the way I figured it, and it seemed to me that they were just telling me things that I had been taught in my childhood about the right way of living. And I said, well, gee, at least you guys have got something out of this. Maybe there's hope for me, because I just about given up hope, and I tell you, I was willing to quit drinking, but I didn't know how. <coughs> Picked up 
and taken to this county judge. There's one thing that sticks in my mind, and it always will, and I knew it was at that time. It may not mean anything to you, it may not get what I mean by it, but as we drove home that afternoon, Mr. Constable, John Jackson, left me off at the house that I was living in. And he said, well, I'll be around to get you Monday. This is Friday. And he said, do you remember the judge said, be sober? I said, yep, I'll be sober. So I went in the house, and I remembered that down cellar I had about a half a dozen bottles of ale, and I know that they're going to be nice and cool. And there's one thing I like in this world, it's Valentine's Day, and that was it. So I went down cellar, and I said to myself, I can't possibly get drunk between now and Monday on six bottles of ale, and I know that nobody in town is going to sell me anymore after they've heard that I, you know what a small Vermont community is, everybody from ten miles up and down the valley knows all about anything like that. I knew that none of the, I mean, the bootleggers wouldn't sell me anything. And I got down and I reached one of those bottles and, uh-uh, that ain't cricket. All right, the judge said, you get there sober, will you? You be there sober. No, that, that is not cheating. That's somehow. And I walked back upstairs, and that damn devil hopped on my shoulder. Get on, go on down there and take it. I couldn't take that damn ale. I said, no, that's not, well, that, that's not the spirit of the thing. It might be technically I might be all right. I'd get there sober, I technically. Well, that's not that's exactly what he meant. He didn't say don't take a drink, but that's exactly what he meant. So I took them and put them in a basket and carried them over to the, my next-door neighbor, and I said, here, they're yours. And that minute I had a victory. I know that. I had something that was just like a weight being lifted from my shoulders. And I've often thought about it. In later years, when I started drinking again, why I couldn't recapture that feeling that I had then. But perhaps I said it's the pink cloud, and later on you you get a more mature, if I may use the word, outlook. But I don't think you, if you have a slip, you can ever go back again. Well, as it turned out, I went down there Monday, and there had been a third man come to see me, too. name was Roland Hazard. And he was a pretty slow gent, too. I never knew him. I never met him before. These other two guys I had. And he was there Monday when I was brought before the judge. The judge started to give me a little lecture, and he said, Hazard, will you uh, take this man? And he said, sure. So I was released from my own recognizance, and the charges were dropped. And this guy took me, and he took me back home, left me there. Now, a few days later, I closed the house up, went down and stayed with him. He lived about 15 miles below, south of the town. And then we went on down to New York. And I stayed with Seth Cornell, one of those other chaps that come to see me.
I stayed there about a month, I guess. And uh, during that time, we made trips back to Vermont, Houses and I, and two weeks after I was connected with this Oxford group, by which there's a much looser membership than Alcoholics Anonymous, I really think, I went and got me out speaking. The first weekend that I went out speaking, we went up to Vermont. I spoke in a junior college, two churches, a town meeting hall, and someplace else all in two nights. Two afternoons and two nights. And I still don't know what I talked about. But I just felt good about the whole thing and uh, really figured that these guys must have something, that there must be a higher power to just over the ones that originated the the phrase, uh, believe in a higher God or a higher power as you understand him. And it was while I was doing this and, and uh, going back to New York and I heard about Bill. I hadn't seen Bill, I don't believe, for over a year. Although Bill, you see, was born and raised in a town six miles north of this town of Manchester, Vermont, where I used to summer. I also spent quite a few winters there. Uh, and I heard that Bill was in pretty tough shape, drinking bad, and I had been downtown and in, in Wall Street and seen some of my old friends, one of whom married Bill's sister-in-law, and he said he was in tough shape, and he said, why don't you give him a ring or telephone? And I said, well, I will, but I want to think this thing out a little. I got myself a pretty good story, a pretty good text to go to him. And I can truthfully say now that I believe that if I, that I went over there, Bill would either go for it, lock, stock, and ball, or he would have none of it. He wouldn't just play around with it for a little while. I thought that if he put his teeth into it once, he'd stick to it. Because I thought I knew him pretty well. I've been going to school with him and seen him over the years. So I called him up one night. I didn't get Bill, but I got Lois, his wife, and told her what had happened to me, that this must have kind of shown me something. Well, I don't even sober myself then about five, possibly six or seven weeks. But I think sometimes the initial effect that we get from a thing is we're more powerful then than we are later on. We get stale. Well, anyway, Lois said, why don't you come over to dinner some night? And uh, then she mentioned the date. I said, fine. So that night, I went over about half past five, I guess, in the evening. And, uh, and I rang the bell at 182 Clinton Street. The only person home was an old colored man named Green, who I've known for years. He'd been with the family. And Lois's family, that is. And he said, they're both out. Both Mrs. Wilson and Mr. Wilson and I would come on in. So pretty soon Bill appeared, and uh, he'd been drinking, but he wasn't too bad. And he said, hello, and this, that, and the other thing. And he's kind of edging around. And then he made an excuse. He had to go out and get some ice cream and something else for supper, and... I know what he's going after. I understand. I've done it so many times myself. 
So, then Lois came in. And there was another girl invited. There was a girl invited because uh, she lived upstairs and had made a place in uh, some apartments. So we all sat down to dinner. And Bill's got a little garbled in the book about again across the kitchen table, but it don't make any difference. The idea is there. Now, we had dinner, and then we all moved upstairs in those houses, and we were back there in the east. Most of the living rooms on the second floor. So we moved up on the second floor, and after a little hammering and hawing, Laura said, well, let's hear about yourself. So I started in. I guess they got me wound up, and I guess I started putting at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I remember Bill, so I walked the subway with her. And I knew that he wasn't going to go for a drink, because he had a bottle in the house anyway. And on the way over, he put his arms around my shoulder just before I went on the subway. So I don't want you got, kid, but you got something, and I want to get it. Well, he didn't stop drinking right away any more than I had stopped drinking. Back there that summer when the extra group boys came to see me, but the idea was in there, and the idea happened to get in Bill's head. And at that time, I had moved to a mission on 1st Avenue and 23rd Street in New York City. It was run by Calvary Episcopal Church called Calvary Mission. It was run under the auspices of this Oxford group. It was just a typical so-called Bowery Mission. We had 12 men who were running it, and, uh... <coughs> excuse me. We only had available beds for about 35 men, and they were full every night. And I was living there, and about two nights after I'd been over to see Bill, he appeared at the mission, just as the meeting was about to start, and I he had a guy in tow, and they were both visibly drunk. But not too bad, and long about, there's a great many of them, that was the, those meetings there were what's called testimonial meetings. We had a man up on the platform, and uh, he would... Uh, call on various men in the audience, they'd get up, say what they'd found. Of course, the, most of them are doing it just to get the place to sleep. They call it taking a nose off a guy to get a flop. That's the way they expressed it. Well, in the midst of all these proceedings, Bill gets up and walks up to the platform, and he's about six feet three, you know, and he leaves his elbow on the piano, and he starts to spout it. I'm a superdancer. Get him down. Next year, try and pull him down over there. I said, let him go. Let's see what he's going to say. The guy gave you a dirty look, but he let Bill talk. And then two or three days later, this was sometime late in November, as I've been talking to uh, Jim and Dick and some of the other boys, I wish that either Bill or I or somebody kept a diary back there so that we could you know, remember dates and have some kind of memory uh, to our stories. Because you go back 24 years and you come out for the life you recall things accurately. Well, this was sometime late in November in 1934. And it was a few days later that Bill got himself a taxi cab and two or three bottles of beer and went up to Towns Hospital in Central Park West. And when I heard he was up there, I guess it was the next day, I went up to see him. Because I made up my mind that having started this with Bill, it was up to me to 
sticking out, which I think is a true thing in every AA 12-step case you go on. If you're going to do it, don't spread yourself too thin and take on 25 or 30 people. I'd rather see you concentrate on one or two. I don't know whether I'm my brother's keeper or not. But I do think that if you start and put something in a man's mind and possibly in his heart and soul, you got to stick with him to his tough spots as well as his, his victories. Because you do the one that started it, and it's up to you to see as it gets on the street. So I followed Bill up up there, and we had some talks, and he got out, and he went back down around Wall Street and wanted to make a few little moves in there, and... I kept riding herd on him, as they say out in Texas, but I rode herd on him. And uh, he came around and he began to attend Oxford group meetings, which I might add are exactly the same as AA meetings today. They had a speaker, I mean a leader. That's what they call it. They didn't call it chairman, they called it the leader and three or four speakers. And Bill spoke many times from Calvary House and Gramercy Park North in New York City. And later on, when we split from the Oxford Group and became Alcoholics Anonymous, we went back to that place and had our meetings there up to about two years ago. The original Manhattan Group. And of course, uh, Ohio, Cleveland, and one of the other cities,
but they were longer for 16 months and 8 months and 7 months and so on. And uh, summer of 1953, I was again in New York City drinking, and I walked in the intergroup one day, and uh, Hazel Rice, one of the secretaries there, said, I think I've got a man that can help you. He's got something real and something tangible. And she said, I'm going to call him right away. And she called this man and came down to see me. He says, where do you drink? And I said, on the wrong third avenue. He said, come on, let's go. And he said, I ran into Abel Gray, a man who originally came to see you over in Paris, France. He said, how's old Eddie doing? This guy said, I don't know Eddie, but I hear he's not doing at all. So he says, Steve told me that you didn't have a chance here in New York, and we don't think you have. I said, I know damn well I have, but look, I can't throw it off. Well, he said, how about going to Texas? Well, I said, I don't know about that. Well, he expounded on the virtues of Texas and those good old American ways of living that were still down in these parts of the country. He gave me five dollars and bought me another drink. He said, I'll see you tomorrow night. So he did, and the three of the funds. Of course, I worked him for another five dollars. That's for sure. And a few more drinks. And that was Thursday night. I said, I'm not going to see any more, but the office still holds good. That is why I ran into the Grave, a man who originally came to see you over in Paris, France. He said, How's old Eddie doing? He told him one door, and I was going to I don't know Eddie, but I hear he's not doing it all. Charlie Milton. And so he says, Steve told me that you didn't have a chance here in New York, and we don't think you have. I about Texas, I said. I said, I know that more I am than Lick last night. I can't throw it off. So he took me over. He said, how about going to Texas? He got me some clean clothes, and well, I said, I don't know about that. Well, he found it on the voices of Texas, and those good old American ways of living that were still down in these parts of the country. Taking this guy down there. He gave me $5 and bought me another drink. He said, I'll see you tomorrow night. So he did, and the fees were fun. Of course, I worked him for another $5. That's for sure. And so I had more drink reservation that night. And that was Thursday night. I said, I'm not going to hear him. It was Sunday before Labor Day. September 6th. And the dirty stone thrown over here gave me a drink after three months drunk. I got on board that plane, and I didn't know whether I was on a plane or a ferry boat or where I was. And I got off the plane as a man stopped, and I would have been off sure in hell. Another stop, and it was. I got off that plane, and I was the first person out of it. They no sooner had that thing rolled up, and I was I was down on the steps. I had enough flying for one night. When I got down there and I looked around, I saw two big guys, and of course I was having hallucinations all over the place. And I said, they're either a couple of G-men or a couple of goons from some gangster squad. And then I heard that woman's voice again, there's the Yankee bastard. There he is. I've seen him in New York. So they got a hold of me and I put me in the car and took me down to Texas Clinic. And I stayed there, I guess I stayed there all together about two or three months. But the first two or three weeks, uh, it was pretty rugged, because I'm going to tell you right now, I had hallucinations all over the place. I didn't believe I was in Texas. I didn't drag a lot of the place. Uh, one of the girls there that was taking care of the books and sort of running things took me downtown one day, and I couldn't get back in that place fast enough. 
scared of the car, the traffic, or scared of everything. And it wasn't when I was there two weeks later, the guy said, I'm going out to mail some letters to the airport. Do you want to go out? And I said, I sure do. I want to see this airport and see if I'm really in Dallas. And I got out there and I got out of the car and I walked up to this placard that said, Love Field, Dallas, Texas. And I put my hand on it and I said, All right, I'm in Dallas. I believe it. I swear as I stand here, I did not believe I was in Dallas. Because it's been a pretty rugged drunk and a pretty hot summer. And I haven't been much to eat in those three months. I was drinking everything I could lay my hands on, then to be cut short like that. Furthermore, they gave me some cute goofballs down there, and I hate those things anyway. I hate the effect of them. They just make me... Well, I've... I've started, I've taken up so much time telling you it's all been on myself, but I didn't know how to bring the history of AAN. You've all seen how it spread, how it's worked. I know that if it hadn't been for AA when I got to Texas, I never would have been able to survive. I just coming out here alone, I'd have been lost. It was tough enough as it was because I was among strange people, slightly different ways than ours. Uh, it, it was enough evil to get from the Bowery down here in six hours and change yourself all around. But if it hadn't been for those good Texas people and the people in the suburban club, if I hadn't been uh, able to go around there and stay there and skate after it was two weeks before I went in the club, a little over two weeks, I walked by one day and started up a set for us when I went back to the clinic. Almost like a guy going back and hiding under the bed. And I know the trouble times, they said, well, I, know, I heard him talking, man, I don't know what we're going to do with this guy. He's gone goofy. And then I heard a colored girl that worked there. She's quite an old girl woman. And she said, don't you worry about that man. You just leave him alone and he's coming out of it. He's sick. And that's just what I was. I was sick. Mentally and physically. I mean, gradually I worked out of it. And then she took over. And then I was able to get around the club and get into the activities. And maybe I got in and went too fast. That was the hottest summer that had been on record in Texas Weather Bureau. I went down on a ranch, and I was well out working the sheep with this man. He put me in as a shoot man. That's kind of rugged work in 95-degree days. And I got mixed up in an oil deal, and I sold some insurance stock, and every one of them flopped. Insurance company did almost. I'm still struggling to get back on the streets. And I got in another deal on that flop. I was sold for a year, and one month after the year was up, I flopped. And that was in October 1954. I had 13 months, and I only had a few days drinking then. And uh, it was over three weeks later, but I got flapped in the county jail for 10 days, and that was Mr. Bill Beckley's emporium. I came out, and some friends took me in their house, and I sobered up, and I haven't had a drink since. This is the end of Side 1. Please turn Cassette over now and continue to listen on Side 2. Do not fast forward.